This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Narrative Economics by Robert J. Schiller, How Stories Go Viral and Drive Major Economic Events. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Chapter 17, Boycotts, Profiteers, and Evil Business. Anger at business varies through time. People may start thinking business is evil when prices of consumer goods increase substantially. Narratives blame business aggressiveness for rising prices, and public anger may continue after the inflation stops if the public believes that prices are still too high. Anger can also become inflamed when businesses cut wages. Such anger may induce organized boycotts or disorganized decisions to postpone spending until prices are lower. In such cases, people view their buying decisions in moral terms, not just as satisfying their wants. Anger narratives may also interact with self-interested thoughts of postponing expenditures until prices come down. We see the effects of such angry narratives clearly in major economic events, including the Depression of the 1890s, the 1920-21 Depression, the Great Depression, and the 1974-75 recession. We see glimpses of such anger today, and we may see it strongly again in the future. <clears throat> the boycott narrative. The word boycott, with slight modifications reflecting language idiosyncrasies, entered most of the world's major languages starting in 1880. Charles C. Boycott has found eternal fame not because he invented the boycott, but because he was the most celebrated victim. Boycott was the land manager for an absentee landlord in Ireland. Responding to a bad crop in 1880, he offered to cut by 10% the rents to be paid by tenant landlords, but the tenants demanded a 25% cut. He resisted. An Irish organization of land tenants then appealed to the broader community for support against Boycott. In October of 1880, Boycott described his travails in a letter to the editor of the Times of London. Quote, On the 22nd of September, a process server, escorted by a police force of 17 men, retreated on my house for protection, followed by a howling mob of people who yelled and hooted at the members of my family. On the ensuing day, September 23rd, the people collected in crowds upon my farm, and some hundred or so came up to my house and ordered off, under threats of ulterior consequences, all of my farm laborers, workmen, and stablemen, commanding them never to work for me again. The shopkeepers have all been warned to stop supplying my house. I can get no workmen to do anything, and my ruin is openly avowed as the object of the Land League, unless I throw up everything and leave the country, end quote. This is a vivid story, but why did it go viral worldwide? First, it was controversial. On one side, the action against boycott seemed to offend human sensibilities. But on the other side, it addressed the prominent questions of rising inequality and the concentration of wealth and power. It was not the first time that such, such actions have been taken. But this time, the idea developed that asking for moral support in the form of a boycott from the general community might be a powerful tool. Indeed, the boycott seemed to be a new and superior tactic for labor because it involved the entire community, which did not directly benefit from the boycott. 
Thus, it seemed to be proof that the action was moral and not self-interested. The idea was highly contagious, and it spread far and wide. Boycott would eventually become the center prize of its own economic narrative. Like some other narratives, it centers on an emotional response, in this case, anger against business people. The boycott narrative brings with it a sense of conspiracy also generated by anger. As we will see in this chapter, the boycott narrative and others in its constellation tend to recur when there is a broad-based undercurrent of social opprobrium, and they are economically important because they affect people's willingness to spend and willingness to compromise. The boycott narrative goes viral. In The Boycott in American Trade Unions, written in 1916 by labor historian Leo Wallman, he wrote, quote, Almost without warning, the boycott suddenly emerged in 1880 to become for the next 10 or 15 years the most effective weapon of unionism. There was no object so mean and no person so exalted as to escape its power, end quote. By the middle of the depression of the 1890s, the narrative began to change, and the public was, being, was becoming fed up with a constant succession of boycotts. The moral authority of boycotts disappears when most people begin to express suspicion and annoyance with them. As Wallman notes, quote, The influence of the American Federation of Labor has been exerted in inducing its, in its members a greater conservatism in the employment of the boycott. Practically, the great majority of its legislative acts from 1893 to 1908 have been designed to control the too frequent use of the boycott. At the convention of 1894, the executive council remarked the impracticality of endorsement of too many applications of this sort. There is too much diffusion of effort which fails to accomplish the best results. Thereafter, Every few years saw the adoption of new rules restricting the endorsement of boycotts, end quote. But boycotts did not go away forever, and they have recurred periodically throughout modern e economic history. In each case, the boycott lasts only as long as the narrative behind it remains strong. When the underlying narrative weakens, the boycott eventually falls apart. Profiteer stories reinvigorate the boycott narrative with World War I. Related to boycotts was the emerging profiteer narrative. Figure 17.1 shows the epidemic contagion of profiteer, a word associated with anger against business people. The term was coined in 1912, according to the Oxford English Dictionary. It was mentioned extremely frequently around World War I, and just after, with its use peaking during the Depression of 1920 to 1921. Profiteer is a play on the much older word privateer, meaning a private ship that has the government support to prey on enemy foreign shipping. Such vivid mental images enhanced profiteer contagion. Associated phrases at the time were excess profits and, as we have seen, boycotts. In 1918, the last year of World War I, the New York Tribune offered an example of these narratives. Quote, There is a local story, writes the Cleveland Plain Dealer, to the effect that two men in a streetcar were discoursing upon the great struggle, when one of them said, 
The war has been a godsend to my plant. And the other, chuckling, replied, If it lasts two years longer, I will be on Easy Street. Whereupon, as, as the story runs, a woman stood up and smote both men grievously with her umbrella, exclaiming as she did so, If that's what the war means to you, then this is what your remarks mean to me. End quote. The narrative, accompanied here by a powerful visual image of an angry woman using her umbrella as a weapon, was highly contagious. This narrative and similar narratives persisted after the war, strongly affecting attitudes toward business for several more years. The sharpest depression, meaning fastest decline and recovery, in the U.S. history since the advent of modern statistics occurred from 1920 to 1921. At that time, people called the Depression the post-war depression, and the, hun and the unhyphenated word post-war also, also emerged, unambiguously referring to World War I, which was considered a unique turning point in history. The phrase describing it as the war to end all wars had gone viral during and just after World War I. A few decades later, World War II eclipsed World War I, and the meaning of post-war changed to refer to the period after World War II. As a result, the Depression of 1920 to 1921 lost a uniquely identifying name. In a 2014 book, James Grant suggested calling it the Forgotten Depression, which was the title of his book. Nonetheless, the 1920 to 1921 Depression was a powerful narrative at the time of the Great Depression of the 1930s. It was part of the script for that depression. Ultimately, every important event from the Depression of the early 1920s to the Great Depression of the 1930s was put in the emotional context of either pre-war or post-war. For example, in 1933, 20-year-old soldiers who had survived World War I, then in their mid-30s, still maintained wartime friendships and in many cases still nursed wartime wounds. Both depressions also generated an atmosphere of public outrage toward business, as exemplified by the angry woman attacking the two businessmen with her umbrella. The Return to Normalcy after World War I, with immediate post-war inflation totaling 100%, a deflation narrative developed by 1920. The story that consumer prices would fall dramatically was strongly contagious, owing to its association with the profiteer narrative. Indeed, during the 1920-1921 Depression, thousands of newspaper articles noted that certain individual prices had fallen to their pre-war 1913 or 1914 levels. The newspaper's writers and editors knew that readers would respond well to such stories because, to most people, it seemed natural that once the war was over, prices would return to their old levels. A very important perceived return to normalcy that might eventually encourage consumers to buy a new house or buy a new car, but only after prices came down fully. The idea that prices would fall to pre-war levels was encouraged by the talk during the 1920 presidential campaign. Presidential candidate Warren Harding popularized the word normalcy to describe the world's conditions before World War I promising to bring back those conditions. 
use of the word normalcy long before 1920 can be documented. It was not Harding's invention. But the word was used so rarely before 1920 that many people believed that Harding had coined it. Harding used normalcy, just as Donald Trump used the words bigly and huge in his 2016 election campaign promises to make America great again. In both Harding's campaign and Trump's, words loaned a concreteness to the narrative, were frequently joked about, and seemed almost to provide a name for the narrative. For Harding, the word normalcy reflected a tendency to conflate the depression conditions of 1920 with the still vivid trauma of the war, making for an emotionally intense narrative of the times. In his March of 1921 inaugural address as new president of the U.S., Harding summarized what he'd emphasized throughout his 1920 election campaign. Quote, The business world reflects the disturbance of war's reaction. Herein flows the lifeblood of material existence. The economic mechanism is intricate, in its parts independent, and has suffered the shocks and jars incident to abnormal demands, credit inflations, and price upheavals. The normal balances have been impaired. The channels of distribution have been clogged. The relations of labor and management have been strained. We must seek the readjustment with care and courage. Our people must give and take. Prices must reflect the receding fever of war activities. Perhaps we shall never know the old levels of wages again, because war invariably readjusts compensations, and the necessaries of life will show their inseparable relationship. But we must strive for normalcy to reach stability. End quote. To buy or not to buy. In the still-bruised emotional atmosphere of the 1920s, waiting to buy discretionary items until the prices fell seemed an obvious strategy, both moral and practical, to most consumers. But postponing purchases helped bring on a depression. As one observer wrote in 1920, quote, The buying public knows that the war is over and has reached the point where it refuses to pay war prices for articles. Goods do not move, for people simply will not buy. End quote. Populist anger grew, along with protests against profiteering manufacturers and retailers. The protests sought to take advantage of a basic economic principle. Quote, if people determine to buy foodstuffs or anything else only what they actually cannot do without, the working of the inexorable law of supply and demand will operate automatically to bring conditions to a more normal state. End quote. Thus, thrift became a new virtue as people waited for the return of the normal prices of 1913. Why 1913? An authoritative retail price index precursor to the modern consumer price index was first published in the United States by the Bureau of Labor Statistics in 1919, just before the 1920 to 1921 depression. The index used past data starting in 1913, the last year of complete peace before the surprise start of World War I in 1914. The index highlighted a very dramatic price increase since 1913. 
Thus, 1913 became the benchmark date for price comparisons, and consumers sought to delay purchases until prices returned to the 1913 levels. In January of 1920, the Commissioner of Labor Statistics, Royal Meeker, said, The prices we kicked about in 1913 have come to be regarded as ideal. Noting that the ideal was mistaken, the Consumer Price Index began with a value of 9.8 in 1913, and by 2020, it had more than doubled to 20.9, and by mid-1921, it had fallen back down to 17.3. But it would have to fall a lot further to get back down to the 9.8 level. In extreme cases of deflation, embellished narratives about deflation might develop um, enough emotional contagion to go viral, and only in that case would buying behavior be significantly reduced. Consumers see some vengeful reward in postponing purchases until prices are at a fair level again. The anger depends on the narrative. Thus, there is not a strong, consistent relationship across countries and through long periods of time between deflation and depression. The economic narrative of the 1920s created an emotionally rich atmosphere of expectations about falling prices. The narrative was not only that it was smart to postpone purchases, but also that it was moral and responsible to do so. Profiteering and Fair Wage Narratives The price increase between the end of the war and 1920 was widely blamed on business people who were labeled with the newly popular word profiteer. None of the words that were used in previous wars to criticize those who profited from the war, such as harpy, racketeer, exploiter, black marketer, bloodsucker, vampire, or pilferer, seem to have the same connotations as profiteer, which suggests wartime fortune-building at the expense of war heroes. Profiteer suggested a big operation, a corporation perhaps, with connections in the government, rather than a small-time individual opportunist, and it thus suggested more of a need for collective action in the form of a serious boycott. It added benefits of boycotts, from a U.S. perspective then, was, that, was their lack of any connection with communism. The word profiteer during and after World War I appeared in numerous narratives, not just those reported in the business columns. Church sermons began to inveigh against the high price of food during the war, criticizing the selfish behavior of business people who showed little human decency or respect for human suffering. Other narratives describe lawyers who discovered the names and addresses of U.S. families who had lost a family member in the war. The lawyers would falsely state the families of fallen soldiers needed an attorney to demand government benefits, and they asked the families to sign a contract to pay them 20% of any government support in exchange for their help in navigating the maze of government benefits. Such narratives made it easy to understand the extremely emotional reactions to such rapacious profiteering. The profiteer narratives did not stop with the end of the war in 1918. During the post-war inflation in 1920 and 21, narratives spread of customers angry at high prices chastising their milkman and telling their butcher they would stop eating meat altogether to spite them. 
economists understood why wartime inflation continued until 1920. Heavily indebted governments faced troubles from a war-disrupted economy and did not want to raise taxes or interest rates, which they believed would only add to the deficit. But the public at large did not believe that. The public began to view the wartime experience and the immediate post-war experience in terms of a battle between good and evil. The popular author Henry Hazlitt wrote in 1920, quote, Hence we have self-righteous individuals on every corner denouncing the outrages and robberies committed by a sordid world. The butcher is amazed at the profiteering of the man who sells him shoes. The shoe salesman is astounded at the effrontery of the theater ticket spectator or speculator. The theater ticket speculator is staggered at the high prices of his landlord. The landlord raises his hands to high heavens at the demands of his coal man, and the coal man collapses at the prices of the butcher. End quote. We might ask, did these people deserve to be called profiteers? It seems that their only crime was selling at higher prices in an inflationary period. In 1922, Irving Fisher visited Germany where the post-World War I inflation continued longer and developed into a hyperinflation. He recalls the conversation he had with a very intelligent woman who ran a clothing store and who offered him an abnormally low price on a shirt given the extremely rapid inflation. Quote, Fearing to be thought a profiteer, she said, that shirt I sold you will cost me just as much to replace as I am charging you. Before I could ask her why she sold it at so low a price, she continued, but I have made a profit on that shirt, but I have made a profit on that shirt because I bought it for less, end quote. Fisher then energetically argued that there was nothing moral or special about pre-war prices or the dollar of 1913. German complaints against profiteering were similar to those expressed in the United States in 1920, which saw 28% consumer price inflation over the 19 months between the World War I armistice and June of 1920. Quote, Syracuse, June 2nd, the John A. Roberts Corporation of Utica, dealers in wearing apparel, was today fined $55,000 by federal judge Harland Howe following its conviction of profiteering on 11 counts. The sales, as explained by the government, were a dress bought for $16.75 and sold for $35, a scarf bought for $6.50 and sold for $25, end quote. The massive inflation created an illusion of high profits for the seller of apparel. Economists tried to explain some of the mechanisms at work, quote, but there is justice of another kind caused by high prices, and that is the excessive profits which businessmen of all kinds, manufacturers, jobbers, wholesalers, and retailers, are able to reap, indeed, almost compelled to take in a period of swiftly rising prices. In these last five years, a businessman could grow rich by merely keeping his goods on the shelf while the market price continued to rise. This is the real story of profiteering. It is not a vicious habit which has suddenly come over the business world and can be stopped by putting men in jail. It is a symptom of the disease, not the disease itself. End quote. 
This argument probably convinced only a few people who hadn't the slightest idea of inflation's true impact on corporate profits. Instead, most people were likely caught in the profiteer epidemic that business had developed a vicious habit of price gouging. The concern with profiteering began to recede only after consumer prices started to fall, but the concern's ebb was not exactly coterminous with that fall, for the epidemic of anger had its own internal dynamics. In the United States, the inflation ended by June of 1920, and although consumer prices never got back to 1913 levels, prices dropped rapidly. Until then, emotions ran very high on the matter. One 1920 letter to the editor stated, quote, Excess profit is just what its name indicates, the fruits of profiteering, usury. And if there is anything in the world that should be taxed, it is that very thing. In fact, it should be punishable by prison sentence or even more severely still, end quote. The government took these emotions seriously. In 1917, during World War I, the U.S. imposed a 60% excess profits tax on profits above the pre-war 1911 to 1913 level. The excess profits tax was not revoked until October of 1921, because anger at corporations lingered long after the war was over. The tax contributed to the 1920 to 1921 depression by encouraging companies to postpone profits until after the tax was revoked. Meanwhile, people held off buying, not only because of their anger at selfish profiteers, but also because of the, po the perceived opportunity to profit from postponing their purchases during a time of falling prices. Perhaps. The 1920-21 depression is better thought of as a 1920-21 consumer boycott-induced depression. In January of 1920, U.S. Senator Arthur Capper said, Profiteers are more dangerous than the Reds, meaning communists, urging consumers to boycott the profit hogs by refusing to buy goods offered at extortionate prices. To use another term of that time, perhaps the Depression was truly a buyer's strike, as captured by the word boycott. Also prominent in the Depression of 1920-21 was a concern about being paid a fair wage. Anger against so-called profiteers was sometimes fueled by some companies cutting their employees' wages. These companies defended their actions by noting that they could not continue to pay higher wages when the market prices for their final goods were falling. Any rational person should have seen that wage cuts were sometimes necessary, but an explanation of employers' need to cut wages was not a contagious narrative. Labor union representatives did not have any incentive to explain the employer's predicament to their members. Rather, they found it in their interests to keep alive a story about evil management. Ooh, that's important. Let me read that again. Labor union representatives did not have any incentive to explain the employer's predicament to the labor union members. Rather, they found it in their interests to keep alive a story about evil management. Huh. A plot of uses of the term fair wage follows a pattern remarkably similar to that of profiteer. However, the growth of fair wage was steeper and more gradual, 
starting in the late 19th century. In books, the peak usage of fair wage was around the time of the 1920-21 Depression. In ProQuest news and newspapers, the peak mention occurred in the Great Depression of the 1930s. The fair wage effort hypothesis, as presented by George Akerlof and Janet Yellen in 1990, asserts that workers are inclined to slow down their work in revenge if they feel that they are not being paid a fair wage. Akerlof and Yellen presented their theory as if it applies equally at all times, but it appears that attention to fair wages can be heightened by changing narratives. Narratives that suddenly ended the sharp 1920-21 recession. The abrupt end of the 1920-21 depression and attenuation of public concerns about profiteering do not seem to have any obvious explanation. Presumably, there were new popular narratives poorly observable today that induced less expectations of falling prices and less anger about high prices. There was a good harvest in the summer and fall of 1920, and, while that may not be a reliable leading indicator, it was taken by many as such. Quote, We raised enormous crops this year, and there is a definite relation between big crops and good times. The war did not repeal natural laws. End quote. In late 1920, Sir Edmund Walker, a prominent Canadian banker, offered the theory why prices would not fall to 1913 levels, quote, This condition of consumer prices well above pre-war levels may last for another generation, and must last so long as the weight of war indebtedness causes unusually heavy taxes and high rents, end quote. By April of 1921, there were claims that there was less profiteering going on as prices slowly settle to peace levels. Many farmers were reportedly already back down to receiving 1913-level prices for much of their produce by 1921. So by that time, there seemed to be less reason to postpone purchases until prices were lower. Also, business and wealth were no longer so evil, so there was no more impulse to boycott. People were becoming more comfortable with spending. Women were said to be wearing more conspicuous jewelry by 1921. Children were bringing money to school rather than lunch bags, and they bought expensive lunches for themselves. A pass-it-along spirit was developing by late 1921. Quote, Everyone is taking more comfort, finding more enjoyment in life than ever before. For proof of this, see the roads filled with automobiles. All that means the expenditure of money, end quote. The sharp recovery in 1921 might be attributed to these new narratives rather than to any active government stimulus to, to revive the economy. Contrasting the Depression of 1920 to 1921 with the Great Depression of the 1930s. Labor historians have found that labor was more acquiescent to wage cuts justified by falling prices in the 1920-21 Depression than in the later Great Depression of the 1930s. Labor unions were fewer and weaker in the former episode, and thus union propaganda was less viral. Therefore, employees had better success in 1920-1921 with arguing that they must cut wages because of deflation. 
They noted that the lower prices they could charge for their products left them with less revenue to pay wages. In The Forgotten Depression, written in 2014, James Grant attributes the relatively rapid end of the 1920-21 depression to such wage flexibility. In contrast, narratives in the 1930s described employers' justification for cutting wages as purely the result of greed and lies. Clergymen were criticized for becoming politicized against business. Quote, Some of the clergymen who think they were ordained with a special power to preach economics instead of religion go into wages and work wholly on emotion. They passionately urge minimum rates and hours on such broad and fine humanitarian grounds that those who oppose regulation on equally fine and broad humanitarian grounds find themselves classed with the sweatshop employers as enemies of human progress, end quote. Such talk surely will make it hard for employers to cut wages to avoid layoffs and to, um, and to maintain goodwill with the public. In addition, as noted in Chapter 13, the National Industrial Recovery Act of June 1933 regulated against wage cuts, and President Franklin Roosevelt's policy, even after the Supreme Court declared the act unconstitutional in May of 1935, only made it more difficult for firms to cut wages. These regulations reflected narratives of the Great Depression, years that wage cuts were truly evil. Even without such regulations, firms would have found it difficult to cut wages in response to lower prices. The return to normalcy narrative was not so prominent in the Great Depression of the 1930s and not so easily disposed of with the passage of time. The perception in the Depression of 1920-21 that the Depression was a transitional phase back to normalcy after a war and an influenza epidemic was a fundamental framing difference when compared to the Great Depression. The unemployment and falling prices in the Great Depression were instead seen through the lens of other narratives that were of epidemic proportions in the 1930s. The confidence narratives, see chapter 10, the frugality narrative, see chapter 11, the technological unemployment narrative, see chapter 13, and the 1929 stock market crash narrative from chapter 16. Boycotts and Profiteers During the Great Depression of the 1930s References to the 1921 or 1920 to 1921 depression began during the October of October 28 to 29 stock market crash in 1929. The last big crisis always has a special place in people's minds, especially if it was the biggest crisis ever, because such stories rely on people's memories to enhance contagion. The one narrative at the beginning of the Great Depression held that the current situation was essentially a repeat of the 1920-21 event. The larger Great Depression narrative had to differ in some fundamental ways. The narrative of the 1920s emphasized the recent suffering from World War I, but that narrative was, was less intense a decade later in the 1930s. However, the deflation observed was much the same. The consumer price declines in 1920 to 1921 looked like the sharpest ever. Because many people after 1929 expected prices to fall, 
as they had following the 1920-21 depression, they chose to delay their purchases until the price decline was complete. A month or so after the October of October 28 to 29 of 1929 stock market crash, the news paid much attention to the signs of weakening retail sales during the annual Christmas shopping season in the US. News articles described Christmas buying as normal but weak in luxury items. However, Buying was normal only because of price cutting, with the changes attributed to the psychological effects of the stock market crash. Economists expected the contraction to be as short-lived as that of 1920-21, which helps explain why President Hoover, Hoover and others confidently stated in 1930 that the Depression had started in 1929 and would be over soon. But the public didn't generally believe President Hoover. Near the bottom of the Great Depression in 1932, the narrative persisted that consumer prices would eventually fall to 1913 or 14 levels, which would have meant another 20% decline in prices beyond what we know as the bottom level of consumer prices in 1933. This narrative justified postponing purchases of consumption goods. Catherine Hackett wrote in 1932, quote, I have read enough predictions by economists to convince me that my guess is as good as anyone's on the future trend of prices. A housewife plays the falling commodity market just as an investor plays the falling stock market. She sits tight and waits for prices to settle before buying anything but actual necessities. But I do not, I do not need to be an economist to realize that if all the 20 different million housewives do that, business recovery will be indefinitely delayed, end quote. This quote illustrates some important aspects of consumer behavior. Hackett compares consumer behavior to the behavior of stock market speculators who do not trust experts and who put emotional energy into forming their own personal forecasts for individual stock prices. She also notes the high contagion of narratives about such speculation. Women must have been talking like speculators, telling stories about smart decisions and some mistakes with their shopping successes and failures among the unpredictable variability of consumer price changes. Even if the average shopper expected some non-negative inflation, the result could be a significant net decrease in consumer spending if there was a higher contagion rate for emotionally-laden narratives about likely price declines. It is curious that economists haven't looked more at the testimonies of women to understand buying patterns in the depression of the 1920s and 30s. Given the sex roles of the era, in which men were likely to play the stock market and women likely to manage the shopping, women must have been talking extensively about strategizing their shopping based on hunches. The men who wrote the history attributed everything to important decisions by male bankers, male presidents, and male business leaders, but the critical decisions that brought on the depression, that is, the postponement of purchases, may have come more from the women. In fact, in 1932, during the depths of the Great Depression, a Mrs. Charles E. Foster reportedly told a women's group, quote, one of the most effective weapons in the hands of American women today is their tremendous purchasing power. We are told that they spend 85% of the incomes of the United States. 
How could they better create public opinion in favor of spending, as usual, than by setting the example themselves? End quote. Meanwhile, like the Depression of 1920-21, the Great Depression of the 1930s saw many boycotts against German and Japanese goods, as well as against goods associated with Jewish people. Germans began boycotting Western goods. All of these boycotts must have had economic effects. The Buy Now Campaign In the early days of the Great Depression, there were attempts to create a moral imperative against the bargain craze that led consumers to postpone purchasing. The Washington, D.C. Chamber of Commerce launched a campaign in 1930 with the slogan, Buy Now for Prosperity. A prosperity committee sought the participation of clergymen of all denominations to preach prosperity through the pulpits, and thereby to stimulate production, relieving the unemployment situation. When he became president in 1933, Franklin Roosevelt launched his own Buy Now campaign, describing patriotic citizens overcoming their impulse to wait for lower prices in order to support a stronger economy. In August of 1933, a Buy in August campaign described patriotic people as making a special effort to buy retail products in August, usually the slowest month of the year for retailers. Consumers were reminded that August was canning time for many fruits and vegetables, and so a good time to buy them. Their campaign publicized the seasonality of consumer prices, implying that prices would rise for the rest of the year and that wise consumers should purchase now. Clearly, this Buy Now campaign was an attempt to counter the prices will fall narrative that had taken hold. Later Boycott Narratives After World War II, the United States experienced something akin to a repeat performance of the 1920-1921 Depression and its boycotts. But this time, government authorities remembered the narrative of 1920-21 and used it to guide their response. After the war ended in 1945, the U.S. authorities maintained the wartime price controls for a while to prevent the kind of inflation experienced in 1919 after World War I. From April to October of 1945, there was a very brief but sharp recession linked to demobilization, a recession with stable prices as measured. But as the U.S. government lifted the controls, prices began to rise rapidly, and by 1949, they were about 30% higher than they'd been in 1945. Once again, there was talk of consumer boycotts and a buyer's strike and there was a recession in 1949 that resembled that of 1920. Newspapers, again, reported that buyers were waiting for prices to come down before buying postponable items. The severe recession of 1973-75 is widely attributed to an embargo, the selling counterpart of the boycott. The Arab oil embargo began in October of 1973, during the Arab-Israeli, or Yom Kippur, War. The embargo took the form of limiting the supply of oil from the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries, OPEC, which sympathized with the Arab nations that had attacked Israel and were about to be defeated, with the United States supporting Israel. 
The embargo was a principle, or emotion-driven event, continuing long after the war and ended in the same month that it started. It was a statement of moral support for the Arab countries, even though only one of the 11 OPEC countries, Iraq, was among the five Arab countries that participated in the war. Many of the narratives surrounding the recession of 1973-75 had a source in human anger. This most cited cause of this, the most cited cause of this recession, <clears throat> the oil crisis generated by OPEC angrily protesting American support of Israel in the Yom Kippur War, was only part of the story. The price of oil suddenly quadrupled to unheard of levels, generating anger among consumers and stories of difficulties dealing with oil rationing in the U.S., such as odd even rationing of gasoline. Consumers could buy gasoline only on odd numbers days if their license plate ended with an odd number, and only on even numbered days if their license plate ended with an even number. Higher oil prices caused higher electric bills, <clears throat> and anger at the perceived injustice was one of the reasons many people started keeping much of their homes in darkness as a sort of protest. In the period of runaway U.S. inflation of the 1970s, when many viewed inflation as the nation's most important problem, one observer wrote in July of 1974 that fighting inflation is like fighting a forest fire. It requires courage, team play, and coordinated sacrifice. At the time, U.S. inflation was 12%, which was a record high excluding periods surrounding the world wars. The firefighting metaphor has moral overtones that might have caused people to curtail spending. Indeed, at the very beginning of the severe 1973-75 recession, in April of 1973, there had been a meat boycott in which consumers protested the high price of meat. The boycott reportedly put 20,000 U.S. meat industry workers out of their jobs. In, out, in August, there was a one-day boycott, a don't-buy-anything day. The next year, in January of 1974, with the economy well into the recession, angry consumers renewed the meat boycott and extended it to a grain boycott. The boycott sentiment remained in, remained in consumer consciousness for some time, generating reduced purchases of a wide array of goods and services, leading to or at least contributing to, the recession. During the world financial crisis years of 2007 to 2009, thousands of boycotts were reported, including boycotts of mortgage lenders and of gasoline, but boycotts and profiteering did not appear to rise to the level of economic significance seen in earlier episodes. Still, narratives that stimulate angry boycotts will likely appear in the future, just as they have in the past. How emerging businesses and labor unions are perceived, as either good or evil, matters greatly for the future state of the economy, a topic to which we turn in the next chapter. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.